Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley from the Thread Bible Podcast. What do business cards, vanity plates, monograms, and Instagram pages have in common? Find out in today's Thread Podcast. Welcome to Thread, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life through verse-by-verse study of the Bible. In Season 4, we're exploring the bedrock of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 12. Season 4 of the Thread Bible Podcast is brought to you by MediaLightOnline.com. Well, today we're in Genesis chapter 11, coming down the finish line in our study of the first 12 chapters of Genesis, the foundation of the entire Bible. And this is chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon. It's a huge story in salvation history, but it's also a story war on Babylon itself. So let's talk about Babylon. Babylon was the greatest city of the ancient world. Its name means the gate of the gods. And Babylonians had a few hundred years to be the strongest nation in the world. During that time, they told a glorious story of the founding of their divine city. It was their national mythology. And in their story and in their mind, their story symbolizes their greatness as a people. You know, they were the exemplars in their generation of human technological achievement. And in their version of their origin story, they are the favorites of the gods and they're, well, at least a set of the gods, And these are the gods who've made them ascend to greatness over all the nations of the earth. So they're awesome. But the Bible tells a different story. And in the Bible's version of their origin story, it evaluates Babylon not in light of its human achievements, but in light of its posture and its attitude toward the creator God and his plans for the earth. Babylon, as we've mentioned before, uh, becomes this huge theological container in the Bible. First, we find it here in chapter 11, although it's been alluded to already, uh, but we see it established here in chapter 11, and then it becomes the place of Israel's bondage uh, later in the prophets and in the history books of Israel, and finally, the last book of the Bible, Revelation of St. John. Uh, it uses Babylon as this very well-developed symbol of man's organized conspiracy against God. And, it, you know, it's no longer tied to a geographical country that was called Babylon, but it becomes a spiritual concept for all the ways in which human society in every land is organized against the Lord. And, I mean, you'd have to be blind not to be able to see it these days. You know, there's not—going um, to the banking, the pill, you, you got to look at the pillars of society. And you can't look in banking and say, okay, banking uh, leans toward righteousness. It doesn't. Neither does government, nor does education, nor does media, you know, like— all these, or the military, like all of it, it has a bent in the exact same direction, and that is anti-God. 
anti-God's plan for the earth, anti-peace, anti-righteousness, anti-fairness. It's all there. It is a world organized against its creator. And Babylon serves as an example of what humans will always do when you give them power and creativity, and that is they will make war on God, and they will strive to become little gods. And it never works because we're humans, and it always ends in scrambling and division and scattering and alienation, first of all from our own maker, but then also from each other. Humans elevating the works of our own hands and puffing ourselves up with pride, trying to make a name for ourselves. You know, we're just so intent on crafting an exalted image of ourselves and focused on me, 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 my favorite person, me. And we just, when we get coordinated and organized and humans put their power together, we just always end up separated and insecure and confused and vulnerable. And Babylon is going to teach us a lot of lessons about power and about ambition. Well, the story of the birth of Babylon actually begins with Nimrod, its founder. And he is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 10. And his name is symbolic. His name means we will rebel. And he's introduced to the story Uh, In 10 verses 8, verse 8, as an expert killer, he is a killer of animals and, by extension, a killer of humans. Because in verses 11 and 12, we learn that Nimrod was also an empire builder. He took land. He established himself centers of power. And he first built Assyria, Micah, in 5 Chapter 5, verse 6, calls Assyria the land of Nimrod. And so he establishes Assyria, and then he establishes the settlement that will become Babylon the Great later on. And we will read Babylon's story in chapter 11. But, you know, so here's Nimrod. We will rebel, expert killer, and he has established the two great nations that will seek the death of Israel, actually, to destroy it as a nation. Uh, Assyria will take away in 722 B.C. uh, 10 of the 12 tribes, and Babylon will finish the job in 586 B.C. and take the rest of Israel. Um, The um, most notable strength of Israel, they'll take all those people back to Babylon and put them in exile there. And so this book is a, it's a message from God in, in the form that we have it now. It's a uh, message from God to people in Babylon, to people struggling against Babylon. And it's the word of the Lord describing the origin of Babylon, which is an echo and a prediction of what is coming for Babylon in the future. Now, something's unique about this story in chapter 11, and that is that the events of chapter 11 are out of time chronologically. If you look at chapter 10, you will see the the human community has been scattered. We've become nations gathered around language groups. And then you, uh, you know, you flash back 
in chapter 11, and you get all the humans speaking. They're still all one group, you know, because that's how humans were. Uh, one group of humans, they're all living together, and they're speaking a single language. And this reminds us again that this book is not going to allow us to confine it to being a just a historical account. There's history here, but that is not the purpose of this book. This is a theological narrative, and the material is going to be organized and presented around the flow of the story it wants to tell us, the truth it wants to tell us. And the central character of this story is the creator God, Yahweh. And every um, scene in this story is going to be here to tell us something about him and about his relationship with humans and with planet Earth. Um, In Genesis 1 through 12, there are seven stories with 20 characters. Uh, These seven stories are... Number one, Yahweh's creation of heaven and earth. Number two, Adam and Eve. Number three, Cain and Abel. Number four, the great flood. Number five, the cursing of Canaan. Number six, the Tower of Babel. And number seven, the call of Abraham. And everything here is so carefully designed to make a theological point. These stories had their ancient origin uh, when, you know, it really happened and it was really told and then it had a written form at the pen of Moses who gathered the stories together and then it is recrafted again in the form that we have it today uh, to speak to those in in exile in Babylon and so they are having to deal with the existence of Babylon in their daily life they are under the boot of Babylon and the Lord and Babylon has its own version of their glorious founding by the gods, and the God who made all things is giving an entirely different story than the ones Babylon is telling. So this is a, a story war uh, against Babylon in the hearing of those who are living there as Jews in bondage. Well, let's just read the story, verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to read from the New Old Translation of Samuel Bray and John Hobbins. And all the earth was of one tongue and of one speech. And it happened as they journeyed east that they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said, each man to his neighbor, Come, let us bake brick. Let us burn it until it is burnt through. And brick was their stone, and tar was their mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its head in the heavens, and let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of all the earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. And Yahweh said, See, they are one people. And all have one tongue. And this is the first thing they make. And now nothing they plan to make will be closed off to them. Come, let us go down there, scramble their tongue, so no man may hear the tongue of his neighbor. And Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of all the earth. And they gave up building the city. Hence her name is called Babylon. For there Yahweh scrambled the tongue of all the earth 
and made it Babel. And from there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of all the earth. Stay tuned. Okay, let's pick off some high points here. Number one, when the story opens, mankind is united and everybody speaks one language. And then, verse 3, something new happens. They have a breakthrough in advanced technology. And their breakthrough is the concept of mass-produced, uniform-sized building materials. Um. You know, you have these moments in human history, and they're scattered all over the planet where there are these technology leaps. They're hard to understand how, how it could even happen. But we find whole abandoned cities, elaborate cities, and they've used advanced construction methods. Sometimes, you know, there's the entire st- structure is in precise alignment with heavenly bodies and it's done in a way that it just seems impossible. You got Machu Picchu, Inca and Aztec cities, Easter Island, Stonehenge, Angkor Wat, which I've been to and just spent days wandering through. And, you know, this has given rise when people try to figure out how did this happen? There are all these, you know, theories, theories about uh, advanced entities from other realms who have assisted these ancient civilizations and have shared hidden knowledge. You've got a lot of alien uh, conspiracy theories, and you've got some other theories that are not about aliens at all. They're about entities. They're about even entities that are biblical entities. And there is actually an ancient Christian book written probably between the Old and New Testaments. It's called the Book of Enoch. And it is quoted in Jude's epistle, and it, it makes commentary on Genesis 6. You know, that, that strange passage where you have uh, aliens, sons of God. You have these sons of God from another dimension, another realm. They are not human earthly beings, but they are beings. And they invade earthland, and they engage with flesh and blood humans in different ways, and and they come down. And in the book of Enoch says that one of their high crimes against God was that they shared hidden knowledge with humans, and that humans used this to make more war. Now, I'm not going out on a limb on that, and whether any of this is true, even in the book of Enoch, or not. The builders at Babylon did have a technological breakthrough. They had a new concept, and that concept is, let's stop gathering randomly shaped stones and trying to make them fit together into a wall. Let's make stones with uniform building materials. We'll make our own stones of fired brick, and we'll use bitumen as mortar. And friends, we're still using this material today all over the world. A brick house is a good house. 
And they came up with the idea, and they feel a very great sense of pride. And they have a series of statements. Look in verse 4. Series of statements around, you know, the, the phrase, let us, you know. Let us, first of all, verse 4, let us build ourselves a city. Now, all through the Bible, you'll have this polemic, sort of like a negative argument against cities. Because cities, all over the world, even to this day, cities are, on the one hand, very creative, amazing, dynamic places. They've got a lot more money than the country. They have a lot of forces within them, but cities also tend to be dark. There's murder. You know, there's things happen in cities that don't happen in country areas. I, I, I was always shocked at living in Atlanta growing up, and, you know, we locked our doors. And then you go down to my family in Alabama, and there wasn't a house in the entire community that locked a door. They would go away on vacation and not lock their doors. They would, it was seen as unneighborly to lock your doors. And I've, I still meet people that are like that. Well, it's a difference in a city and a country. There are things happening in a city, uh, very dark things often. And, you know, with the rise of the Internet and all this, the country is becoming so much like the city because of media. But before, you saw a really big distinction. So they decide, though, that of all the things they want to build, they want to build a city, you know, a place of pride, but also a place of great money, centralized uh, military power, centralizing a lot of things. Um, the great cities of the world, that's where all the power is. It's where the money is. It's where the influence is. And our cities even today are like this. Let's build ourselves a city. And Daniel 4 verse 2 actually tells a story about the pride of Babylonians over their city. And it, it's a story, it's, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story of the humiliation of the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he, he well, I'll just read it. Chapter 4, verse 2. It says, At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this Great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty. And at that moment, this king hears a voice from heaven and he becomes a madman and his own servants drive him out of the palace and he eats grass like a cow and his fingernails grow into claws and he lives like that for a season of his life. And then in verse 34, in Daniel 4, his sanity is restored in a moment, and he honors Yahweh with this poem. And it's a great story. It's a great story that we need to hear, especially if, if you are successful in life. You need to read this story and not be proud of your accomplishments. Well, let's build ourselves a city. Secondly, let's build ourselves a tower. Well, not just any tower, a ziggurat, a tower they say, with its head in the heavens, you know. This is talking about one of two things. We don't know which one, and it may even be both. First of all, a battle tower. Let us build 
a battle tower against the heavens. We will rail against heaven. And I've never seen a day like this when we're shaking your fist at God and saying harsh words. You know, it is so fashionable and thought so cool for people to do. They do it in films all the time and just the mockery of the heavenlies. So it's a battle tower. Or it could be their concept of a hot spot with the unseen realm, you know, a place of connecting with the spirit world, a place of trying to to go over into the realm of, of God or in Babylonian thinking. Well, in those days, the whole world was dealing with Yahweh, that he was the God of the earth. And so these people want to have a hot spot with the unseen realm. We want our own access with the unseen realm. We want to call upon that realm and engage it for ourselves. And, you know, there are all these ancient stories where humans invade God's domain and that it's their hubris. You know, the Greeks had a lot of stories about this. The Romans had stories. This quest for human greatness, and it causes us to, in time, not even be content to be a human, but we want we start to covet what is God's alone. We start to covet God's glory. We start to covet honor and security and the sense of impregnability and power and an eternal name. And this verse shows just this sense of antagonism, a sense of uh, competition between the builders of this, this structure and the heavens. So let's build us a city and let's build us a ziggurat, a tower, hot spot into the unseen realm. And let's, number three, let us make ourselves a name. You know, Ernst Becker, in his famous psychological work, The Denial of Death, he says that basically putting our name, you know, the human tendency to want to put your name, put our name on anything, put your name on the wing of a school, on a hospital, on a church, on a business card, on a vanity plate, uh, monograms, family crest, Instagram or Facebook pages. He would say all of this is an attempt to deny death, that we are just looking into the great void and we want to be eternal. And so we want to own our home. We want to own some land. We want to plant trees, you know, anything we can do to push back our own extinction. Um, Let us make ourselves a name. This is really an important matter for us to ponder because this is the day of social media and everyone is now, you know, we're our own publicity agents. And so many people, there's just a, um, there's an epidemic of mental illness, emotional illness. And it has been coming on strong for about the last five years. And this past year of lockdowns has just magnified the effect of it. And it's just people losing it. The pressure, uh, suicide rising in high schoolers. And almost unanimously, people are pointing back to social media as one of the primary causes because, and it's not the ability to talk to each other. You know, it's, it's this idealized personal legend. You know, used to, you just had this tiny group of movie stars in the world. They were ultra famous. 
and their their pictures were you know splattered around everywhere. And over and over again, we watched them melt down. They were just destroyed by that by the um, by the necessity to be a fake person to put up an image that is not real and to be judged minute by minute for every little thing they do. You know, what dress did you wear here? Oh, yeah, someone else wore it too. Who wore it better? It's like it never stopped. Everything they did was commented on. And we saw them all being destroyed. Well, today we're all movie stars. And we all run our own magazine about ourselves called Facebook. And we make our own legend out there. And we are suffering the same fate. Let us make ourselves a name. You know what's so ironic? Okay, here's a quiz. Tell me the name of the master builder on that project. Well, how about the name of the one who invented fired brick? I mean, that was a huge accomplishment. Who who was that? We don't know. Okay, well, who drew the plans for the great tower up into the heavens? We don't know. Not one of their names has survived. Everything they built in that season, and I don't know how many years they spent building that, Everything they built crumbled later, and the sands took it back to sand, and entropy claimed their entire accomplishment, and their names became dust in the wind. We don't know who they were. For all their effort to give themselves a name, they walked away with nothing. Why do they want to do all that? It's the next thing that they say in verse 4. Lest we be scattered over the face of the earth, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. Well, you know, in, um, in the Genesis account of creation, as God looks on humans and blesses them, he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill up the earth. Then humans blow it in such a mega way that there's a global reset. Noah and his family are saved, and the Lord gives them the same blessing, removes the curse, puts back a blessing on them, and he says to them, scatter, go all over the planet, go take it over, spread out, you know, move on. And that's what God has wanted. He wants us to spread good things. What's he doing? He's offering us a chance to walk with him. He's offering us an adventure, the adventure of taking new land with him, of being a pioneer. But the people building this wall, they do not know the Lord. They do not trust the Lord. They will not yield to the Lord. And as I ponder this story, it occurs to me that there are two ways of looking at the business of living. The first way is about bricks, just like these people. With bricks, you use the metaphor of building, and you start saying things like, I'm building a family. We are building a business. I'm building an empire. We're building a great church. You know, the idea of permanence and building and digging in and staying put and making something that will last forever, you know, trying to become something almost eternal fighting entropy on my own. But the problem is, as you start building, if building is what you do, someone said to me once after I 
built a house that I owned, and I started having to fix stuff. And she said, welcome to owning it. Uh, because then after you build it, now you have to worry about security. And you have to be focused about the future. And sometimes we spend way too much energy analyzing past mistakes so we don't repeat them again. You know, so that's one way of living. It's about permanence. It's about bricks. But there's another way to live. And that way is about boots. Put on my boots. And in this way, the metaphor is not building. The metaphor is journey. I'm on a journey with my God. And for these people, life is fluid. It means the scenes are going to change. It means new people are going to come. Some people are going to go. It can be a bit scary sometimes, but it's also very exciting. And it means that I'm focused on not the future. I'm focused on living in the present. And I'm focused not on building, but on taking advantage of opportunities that are presenting themselves to me. And it means that I have to hold my material possessions lightly. I have to value other things, things that, that don't weigh me down. And I, you know, I hear Jesus using this kind of language more and more. Uh, his, his lightness about money, even his, even things like family, you know, he's, he is speaking, and his mom and his brother show up, and they, they interrupt his, they send a messenger to interrupt him and say, we are here, we are your family, we lay claim to you, we are traditional, we are established, we are a stationary part of your life, stop your teaching, come out here and receive us. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, it, it was scandalous it, then and now. He totally redefines family. He says, who is my mother? Well, she's standing right out there. Who are my brothers and sisters? Well, they're out there in the corridor. And he looks at them and he says, you are my mother. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. Why? He felt the flow of the Holy Spirit going on. There was life between them. There was a transfer of what God was doing in the earth right there. And he was, you know, he's putting his energies into the moment where God is at work in his life. It's a very fluid way of living. And it did not, it did not go well with the Pharisees, with the Jewish establishment, with anybody who's part of the building mentality. So how about you? Are you about bricks or are you about boots? Are you about staying or are you about sojourning? And this is worth thinking about. I mean, maybe maybe you need to modify the way you think about your life. I've been thinking about it because I'm a bit of a builder. I'm also a journeyer. Somewhere in the middle there, but I... I need the freedom, especially now where the world is being so shaken. And if your hand, you know, if, if you're trying to always brace your world as it's being shaken and keep it from falling over, uh, it's, it's a very anxiety-creating way of living. But we're on a journey, and if this sandcastle falls over, you just have to believe the Lord has another place for you. You know, you'll survive. 
do okay. He'll pick you up. You'll keep moving. Uh, he's not falling. Your circumstances may change. And, and actually, this story is this huge contrast. And it's a contrast with the next story. Because you have the call to build Babylon versus, and Babylon is like the peak of human achievement, versus the call to Abraham. You know, humans are making the call to build Babylon. God is making the call to Abraham. And the human call says, come, let's stay. And God's call to Abraham says, come, walk with me. Let's go. The human side says, come, let's not be scattered. And God says to Abraham, leave your father and mother. I mean, leave your father and mother. In a Middle Eastern culture, you just don't do that. Leave your father and mother. Come walk with me. The call of Babylon says, come, let's make ourselves a great name. And God's word to Abraham is, come, go with me. I will give you a name. Totally different mentality about all of it. And you're intended to see the contrast. We'll be right back. All right, well, as the story now moves to its conclusion, Yahweh comes down, and that's ominous. You know, it's like you you turn around, your dad's standing there or your mom's standing there. And Yahweh looks at the work of their hands, and he is not in this version. You know, this is a story version. Uh, He's not afraid of their little town. He's not afraid of their contact point with spirit world beings. But all this does signal their stubbornness against him. And his words are, nothing they plan will be closed off to them. And now Yahweh begins to, and you see another contrast, because remember, they began their words with let us, let us. And now God also says, let us. And he's speaking to who? We, don't, we aren't told. But if we just add up all the clues all the way through the Bible of when God is shown he's always in his counsel. It's, uh, it's very rare that there's any image of God, and he's not surrounded by his crew. You know, his counsel is there, and he says to them, let us go down and see what they do, are doing, and now let us, verse 7, it's an interesting word that's used, let us scramble, think of scrambling eggs, Uh, scrambling up letters uh, on a scrabble table so that it doesn't mean anything. Let us scramble their tongue so they can't hear. And the idea of the scrambling is about division. It means let's cause, let's take away the divisions in the sound. Let's take away the significance of the sounds. Let's erase the needed boundaries between sounds and their meanings. You know, boundaries are so important in the function of creation. That is one of the things we learn from Genesis 1. 
is when God wants to create, it's with boundaries. He needs to draw lines and build boundaries. And when you take them away, when you erase a boundary, that is the work of entropy. That is the tohu vabohu condition that wipes the lines out and then everything just flows until it doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, in Genesis 8, when Yahweh eases the boundaries on the deep, it brings the global flood because there's not a line anymore and the deep comes up and takes all the space. And now he's going to release the boundaries on sound. And that's going to bring a flood of conflicting sounds that cannot be comprehended. You know, I had a horrifying experience some years ago. Uh, I just suddenly had, um, well, it's called sudden hearing loss. And it wasn't just that I went deaf uh, half of, on half my, on my right side. It, it wasn't just that I went deaf. It was that hearing was replaced with chaos. And I went, you know, I went to different doctors and I finally went to the house clinic in Los Angeles and they really were as rude as Dr. House. But they were, they were also pretty proud of how good they were. And I trusted them. The more I dealt with them, the more I believed in their ability um, to take good care of me. So, um, but, you know, they told me as they were looking at my case, they said, there is nothing wrong with your ear. Your problem is in your brain. It's where your brain connects to the nerves that go to your ear. Something has triggered that and your brain is no longer processing the sounds that you hear. You don't have a mechanical problem. That's what's gone on with you. And it was, you know, in the place of hearing normal sound, I just heard chaotic noise that was coming inside, trapped inside my head. It was horrible. Thanks be to God. He took it away from me, and I praise him for that, that I can hear but in their quest to become great, they lost their ability to hear each other. He changed. He scrambles their words. And suddenly now they can't connect with each other. And this Tower of Babel story tells us that as humans, we've now lost the ability to really hear each other. That there is so much... That Joe Harry Window concept that, you know, there's so much of me that I know about it, but you don't know about it. You can't see that. It's inside of me, but it's real and it's me. And then there's a part of me that you can see it, but I'm blind to it. And then there's a part of me that neither one of us can see. And then there's a part of me that we both can see. And you know, there's just all these levels of what is in a human, what kind of meaning is in there, what potential is in there. Well, so much of it is now covered in humans today more than any time in my life. We are hopelessly divided, and it hurts so much to be divided. And it's funny, all the more we're all crying to be understood, but it's, it's almost impossible to understand us, even to understand ourselves. We're in this state of permanent division, not able to be understood and not able to share what's inside of us. And you know the worst part? According to this story, <laughs> the worst part is this horrible condition 
is what's saving the world from us. You know, the problem of the world is the humans. It's always been the humans. And this story tells us that this horrible condition of being divided from each other is actually the only thing saving the planet from being destroyed by us. We must not be unified. And we are working so diligently to overcome the curse of Babel through technology. We've got new translations. We've never blended uh, cultures and races and and things the way, even languages. You know, like there's so many places in the world that you start a sentence in one language, you go into another one, you end it in maybe the first or maybe a, a third choice, and all of you understand it. And you know, I, I live in Asia, and I watch this take place, this, this English, Spanglish, all through, Filipinos do it all the time, so do Singaporeans, and it's just like, wow, we are blending like never before, trying to overcome Babel. And then you've got globalism and the promised utopia, you know, of the new world if we have world government. And honestly, as well-intentioned, I will take the position that globalism is well-intentioned and also socialism and also communism. I think communism had a pure root and was well-intentioned, but history is filled with stories of what humans do whenever we effectively centralize power. Communism has destroyed hundreds of millions of people have died because of it, have been murdered because of it. And socialism, too, it's because in order to hold that power, that totalitarian, stronger, stronger, stronger government, it's never strong enough, and the dictatorship of government and that's just what humans do. And it doesn't matter how well your uh, intentions were. The fact that you get the power, we already know what's going to happen because the problem is not government. It's not method of government. It's not capitalism versus socialism. The problem is the human heart. God looks down on humans and he tells us the truth. He says, your heart is focused on raw from birth, your heart is focused on destruction, darkness, evil. It's a pull inside of you and it is there from birth and you are fascinated with it and you are drawn to it. Humans have to receive a new heart. That was the message Jesus preached. He said it in these words, you must be born again. It doesn't mean you must become a Christian. You must join a church. You must be in the group. No, it's about an experience that pulls out your heart of stone and puts in a new heart and it breaks bitterness and pride and arrogance and self-seeking and the love of this world and insecurity and all these things that people all through Christianity, all through every religion, still have mountains of it. They're in bondage to it. But we've all got the label of our religion on us. And Jesus says, the problem is your heart. You must be born again. It's the thing that drove the builders of Babel to do their work. And it is the thing that made them lose their ability to understand each other. And they couldn't complete the work that was in their heart to do. Most horribly, 
It seems that on that day, they also lost their ability to hear the voice of the Lord. And God threatened Israel with this same curse in Amos 8.11. It said, the Lord will send a famine, not a famine of food, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, the inability to hear and comprehend and understand the speaking of God. And Jesus talked about this a lot. He kept saying, the one with ears to hear, let him hear. Well, on that day, oh, let me just back out of this story a little bit and let you look forward. On the day where the languages are divided and humans are divided and they are no longer one human family, but they become a new thing called nations And then you fast forward to the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And what would be the miracle from heaven but the ability to hear each other speaking in every language as God makes again one human family. So the Bible is one integrated story. And these images and these stories tie together with so much power and so much beauty. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On that day, as hundreds of thousands of humans wandered off in confusion, Yahweh seems to have made his exit also. And according to the picture of the Bible, he has very little dealings with the nations of the earth from that point on until Jesus. But he hasn't forsaken the nations. He hasn't divorced the nations. He has a plan. He has an even-though-they're-evil plan. And he's about to launch it. And when he does in chapter 12, it's going to need his full attention. So he withdraws his interaction from all the other nations of the earth. And he will give it to one man and that man's family. And we'll learn about that in our next episode of Thread. So I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. My Bible is coming alive to me. And we'll be in chapter 12 next week, the end of our session. I might do one wrap-up after this, and then I'll tell you a little bit where I'm headed in Season 5 of Thread. But thank you for staying with me for a whole year of digging through the first 12 chapters of the Bible. It's not been wasted time on me, and I hope you've grown through it. So, my friend, expect God to use you this week because you are the light of the world.